Hello and welcome to this podcast episode, Grand Duo in D Minor. What's so compelling about it? This is episode 42 of Forgotten Cello Music. Hello, I'm Aaron. I run a YouTube channel and a Facebook page called Traveling Cello. I dedicate most of my content to unknown works for the cello. Today is all about melody, harmony, and what makes a melody great, in particular in relation to the Grand Duo in D minor by Georg Goltermann. This is Opus 15. There are three movements to this Grand Duo, as he titles it. The first movement is an allegro manontropo, the second is a romance, andante, and the third movement is a finale, allegro moderato. So you have a real treat in store. This grand duo is quite an astonishing piece of work that is unknown. Now after hearing it, you may also be asking yourself, like I did, why aren't cellists playing this music? What is keeping them from indulging in a little something different, a little something new. Now more and more cellists are doing this these days, and so that's great to see. And I even see some cellists branching out in uh, social media. In fact, there was one post I saw that went and posted himself playing the solo line of this grand duo. So that's cool to see. Thanks for listening. I really appreciate the the numbers are going up. You can encourage more of this content and more consistent posting of this type of content here by taking the following actions. Yes, donations are always something that are on creators' minds. Uh, if we're not selling product or teaching lessons or consulting or whatever the case is, we have donations to think about. There are a couple of ways you can do it. You can go to my PayPal link, which is paypal.me forward slash traveling cello, and there you can make any donation at any time in any frequency that you want. Uh, you can visit my Patreon and become a subscriber, and I have the link there. That's patreon.com forward slash traveling cello. So, like I said, PayPal allows you to donate at any amount you want or at any time. You can come back if you like and do it at your convenience. Patreon is a little bit different. Uh, I've set it up so that you can subscribe for as little as a dollar a month up to $25 a month. You can access special content even at the $1 a month level where I've posted some some videos and some um, just text posts for you. At the $3 level you get some stickers. At the $20 level you get uh, a t-shirt and at 25 you get a mug so this is some merch that I've designed with my I guess logo on it it's what you see on this podcast when you click on it it's my face with uh, my cello scroll in front of one side of my face and you get those after three consecutive months of subscription so I do hope that you will come and support in that way there is another way that you can support, and this is how I can raise money as well to fund what I'm doing so that I can do more of this. And that's by 
uh, you can buy these fabulously unique arrangements that I make of uh, well-known music as well as uh, forgotten cello music. They're available on Sheet Music Plus. There are three arrangements so far for sale. That is The Swan by Cessance for cello quartet, Pavan, the famous Pavan by Faure for cello quartet, and a the famous Menuet in G by Beethoven uh, for cello duet. And soon to come, I've already gotten uh, a number of forgotten cello music duets ready. I just need to finish editing them, and then I will be able to post them on Sheet Music Plus for sale as well. And you would buy them directly on that website. There will be links for all of these things in the description. So I hope you look forward to Goltermann, Nocturne in D minor for cello duet, and then some selections from Unsere Lieblinge, which were originally arranged by Julius Klingel uh, for cello and piano, uh, for which I'm doing a cello duet arrangement for a selected portion of those. One more item is the questions, messages. These are uh, things that I would really like to see some of. I've, I've gotten a, a few here and there, some on my earlier podcasts, but I did not receive a message for some months now. And it may be partly my fault because I don't really put it forefront. Perhaps I can do that. Anyway, these questions are things about the episode directly. And uh, I encourage you to take a moment to search for them. Unfortunately, they're only available on Spotify and on Anchor.fm. I'll post links for those. And those are the two platforms where you can respond directly to the questions. And you can even leave a message for me if you go to Anchor.fm. And of course, the very last way you can help support this is just by sharing the podcast with your friends and colleagues. And of course, my YouTube channel, Instagram, and so on. And remember to read my blog. I put a little bit more detailed information there sometimes. I think you're in for a treat today. There's a lot of good information coming up about my thoughts, my opinions, but also some just outright music theory and uh, some quotations from the Groves Music Dictionary. So what is what is a good reason for learning this music? I'll tell you one excellent reason is there's just simply more music for cello, more repertoire for students, and more repertoire for performers at formal concerts, at receptions, at, at weddings. I mean, there's just lots of really good music out there that works well, that would either be front and center or just it's it's so pleasant that it would not detract from the situation at hand um, music like Goltermann's grand duos Klingel's uh, three sonatinas Johann Schettke's 12 duets Breval's six sonatas these provide cellists with so much great repertoire that is not being played by very many cellists right now before I get to the performance of the grand duo I'd like to go over a few of the elements of the music and why I believe they are so compelling. That's up next. And so while you listen to what I'm talking about and what defines melody uh, to my opinions and, and the intrigue of this music, I will be playing 
at least excerpts of the grand duo playing in the background. And later on, you get a, get a treat with the grand duo at the end. So stick around if you want to hear. I finally did a recording. Right. Let's talk about the music. Compelling melody. What makes the grand duo so interesting to me and a lot of Gulternon's music? Well, in particular, it's compelling melody, I think. Uh, especially in the grand duo Opus 15, the one D minor that's featured today. How about we could compare some features of melodic content with, with some great... So I'm not going to compare apples to apples. I'm just going to suggest, and you can go and listen to them yourselves. For example, in great music, you've got Beethoven sonatas, the Bach uh, solo suite, six of them. Brahms wrote two sonatas. Sessons wrote The Swan. And uh, the list can go on and on. I mean, there's Mendelssohn and Schubert and, and uh, Shostakovich and Prokofiev. All of these composers wrote such fantastic music. Melodically speaking, they are similar in many ways, but but unique in, in many ways, too. And go listen to them, and then come back and listen to the Grand Duo. I think you will find some similarities. Now, granted, I've been spending a lot of time with the, this forgotten cello music, so I it really has grown on me. I liked it before, but now I feel a connection to it, and that does make a difference. Melody. Let's define melody and maybe just a little bit on harmony as well. I looked up in the 1906 edition of Grove's Dictionary of Music and Musicians. It is an articulate and detailed dictionary. We should put it that way. There is an immense amount of information, even in the 1906 edition. The most recent edition is just fantastic, and you can read uh, for years on end without stopping and you'd still not get to the end of it. Here is one minuscule excerpt therefrom, uh, but I think it establishes the concept in a broad sense. Anyway, here's the first quote. This is from volume 3, page 109. To take simple forms is often only to make use of what the great masters rejected. So what is meant by simple forms? Groves had earlier stated in the same volume, but on page 108, that modern melody is almost invariably either actually derived from or representative to harmony and is dependent for a great deal of its effect thereupon. So I think if you restate it, it's to say that melody takes its initial idea, the notes and, and shape, by outlining harmony utilizing that harmony and indeed the most basic forms of melody like folk music uh, children's songs in particular take their notes directly from uh, a triad for example then later on uh, still on page 109 he's Grove says that the giants of art have produced tunes the melody of which may represent the simplest harmonic successions but they do it in their own way and the result is proportionate to their own, to their powers and judgment. 
And again, I would have to say, if, if we interpret that, it would be that, in other words, the great melodies do not merely stay within the confines of the harmony actually used to accompany that melody, but they expound upon it. They deviate from it by uh, suggesting other or uh, entering notes not in the harmony, and they even uh, sometimes clash a little bit to give it some more tension, something more interesting. Now here are some thoughts uh, that I have about melody specifically and what it comprises. I got to thinking, how do most people describe a melody? How did I learn it? How, how, what, did, what do we talk about when we're thinking of melodic, melody in particular? A melody can be sung, right? You, you can hum it. You, you can uh, remember it quite easily as opposed to harmony, which, you know, some people can remember it, but usually you just don't hum harmony all by itself, not very often. Uh, another point is that it has a rather arch-like construction. It's like an arch. It goes up, it has a top, and then it comes back down. And this is true for pretty much every melody out there. There's something that happens. It's not static. It doesn't stay on one note or just on one or two notes, not most of the time. But a, a charming melody has this arch-like feature to it. And then harmony. It's, you know, it's complementary. It allows the melody to shine. It supports it. Now, this is getting to be quite a long episode already, but I, I wanted to share my thoughts. A lot of what I'm going to talk about in the next section comes from the blog post I wrote most recently and I th I think it's quite interesting and uh, it, sh it gives you an idea of what's going through my head and uh, specifically why I am so drawn to forgotten cello music and why I have a, a greater interest in and focus on Goltermann's music. So I do think that what you're going to listen to in the next few minutes is is really the basis for why I engage in this project, why it's so interesting to me. So it's it's really telling my perspective of the exploring and the spending time with this forgotten cello music. What makes Goltermann's Grand Duo so good? Whenever you ask a person why they like a piece of music, it usually results in inarticulate generalities. But we don't discount their take or feelings on the music. Genuine emotion counts for a lot, so we tend to accept the other's opinion. There is one caveat. The music is normally very well known and likely in the category of great. That is to say, something like Bach's Prelude in G, The Swan, etc. Now, sadly, the etc. is being a little bit generous since the non-musician is more likely than not to have knowledge of pretty much only Bach, the prelude, you know, the famous one, if even that. They don't even know the name of it, really. The most often heard question I get is, do you know and can you play that famous cello piece? And, of course, it's kind of like, yeah, I know which one you're talking about. Now, before I get to the point of the grand duo, 
it does seem like a useful thing to delve into more detail, which I pointed out earlier, uh, for describing music and melody in particular. So here's a run-through of three pieces by Goltermann, which are the first three works I ever played by him. And that will follow along the path of initial response and then to uh, a musical analysis. All right, so generally speaking, three examples. In the case of forgotten cello music, that is, any of the music that has been uploaded to my YouTube channel, Traveling Cello, I put forth not only my feelings or intuition about the music, but some of the theoretical reasons why it is compelling. When I bring Goltermann's Grand Duo, Opus 15, in D minor, into question, it gets even more interesting. If you have read or watched some of my blog posts and videos, then you have heard some of my own inarticulate feelings already. I mean to say that I voiced why I appreciate Goltermann's music, but in a rather general sense. To review those reasons, the general reasons, I write, I talk about them now. When I was a student, still learning how to maneuver the fingerboard and draw the bow, I began learning Goltermann's Concerto No. 4, Opus 65, in G major, all three movements. I remember liking the entire piece despite having a number of difficulties learning it. Somehow the music opened up new sounds and technical possibilities for me. It was quick, beautiful, flowing, and playful, especially in the third movement. Now jump forward 15 years and I discover a collection of five intermediate nocturnes in a collection. These, despite my now having the technique to play virtuoso-level music, Dvorak Cello Concerto in B minor, Opus 104, for example. Uh, Dvorak is one of many, just in case you're wondering. I, I used to be able to play virtuoso-level music pretty well. Anyway, those, those nocturnes spoke to me in a fundamental way. They gave rise to basic appreciations for music. I have always liked nocturnes, and up to that point, I had no idea that any composer had ever written a nocturne specifically for the cello. This was a huge factor in my appreciation for this music. And then, just a few years later, the Sechstonebilder, the six-tone pictures, Opus 129, show up in a search of mine on IMSLP. I download them, and I read through all six. The immediate reaction is, how is it possible that this music is not on any teacher's repertoire list for their students? I just don't understand. I felt a connection to the character and to the simplicity. Yet, it has challenge, particularly for students, in presenting a cohesive set. They are at once meant to provide interesting performance material, be a bit of a stretch, and be conceptually simpler. It's something attainable, something the student, they have to work at, but they can do it. Nothing above that I just mentioned is a really good way to say why I like the music. It's in terms of the actual music. I mean that it's, it's general, it's diffuse, it has no real musical information in the description. It's emotional, you know, and I respond physically or feel it physically in the description, 
but when you read it, it's it doesn't have any musical information in it. Yet, if you listen to it, you might think that it's relatable because you probably have described music in much the same way. That's just very general. You don't really know it. You can't put your finger on it, but you appreciate it. So now, let's go on to some musical reasons and a little bit theoretical too. So here are those three pieces, Goltermann's Concerto Number no. 4, Five Nocturnes, and the Six Tone Pictures. And this is why they are compelling from a musical standpoint. Let's start with the Concerto. This is going to be the, the real base uh, work for in, to which I refer because it's the first Goltermann work that I ever learned. So in his Concerto, he opens with a typical classical type era exposition. The orchestra is blaring away with the, with the theme and um, gives a, a one, I don't know, one or two minute uh, introduction to the solo. So the soloist is just sitting there as per tradition. When the cello finally enters, a couple minutes later, you hear something out of the ordinary instantly. You would expect the solo to restate the exposition material right away, but it's not there. Goltermann opens the solo with a kind of quasi-cadenza. I mean, it's just a few bars, and it's not a full actual cadenza, but it, it starts deep down in the lowest sounds of the cello, and then it's thrust upwards in an assertive but flowing arpeggiated fashion, and this arpeggio is what we call a fully diminished seven chord. You can think about Bach's Toccata and Fugue in D minor for reference. Now, after this, this bounding up, there's some lyrical figures that float up in the high, uh, slightly higher register. It's kind of undulating about, and, and then there's finally a whirl after he descends again, and as, there's the whirl of ascending scale into the theme finally. So in this first movement, the passage work throughout the first movement, it's, it's always, it's inventive. It's fairly normal. It's not unusual. Um, but it's really well, well worked out. I, I think it's, it's a fantastic piece of music for a student to learn. Now eventually the first movement fades away with the recapitulation in the orchestra. So the soloist does not play in this transition. It's an, orchest in its, it's an orchestral transition, which is all normal. Uh, if the movement were to stop like a normal classical first movement would and you take a short breather without music, then it would be normal. But he does something again that's a little bit unusual. He segues seamlessly into the slow movement, the second movement. And like I said, this is unusual for classical structure. Um, however, there is another concerto. This one's very famous, the Saisons Cello Concerto Number no. One in A Minor, where you have an, an essentially a one-movement concerto with three distinct sections: fast, slow, fast, and it's an unbroken line from start to finish. 
Now in the second movement, the Andantino, it's striking to me because of two features. Uh, the first is probably the key that he chooses. He uses B minor. That's two sharps. He started in G major in the first movement. That's one sharp. Uh, this is related, but it's not a really close relation because B minor is the relative minor of D major. That's that's two sharps, right? But if we were to use the, the relative minor of the first movement of G major, this would be the typical scenario. You would get E minor, right? Which is the dominant, or, or the dominant, I should say, which is D major. So you can see that it is related. Instead of using the dominant of D major, he uses the relative minor of D major. <laughs> so it's, it's a relationship of a third rather than of a fifth. Uh, it, I should say, I should put it this way. It's the relationship of the third up rather than the relationship of the third down. Anyway, it's, it's not always done that way, but, you know, it's, it uh, usually happens to be the, the dominant. So this creates a special and calming mood, especially when the meter of 6-8 is taken into account. It's, it's not flashy. It's a little bit sly, um, subdued. Uh, perhaps with a tinge of Misterioso, uh, not, not overdone. It, it, to me, it's a way of creating low-key yet gently rocking lyrical melody. He does it quite masterfully. What's more is that the melody begins on beat two of this 6-8 with the downbeat silent for the soloist. So you get da-da-dee-da-da. Even go... Uh, I, I'd even go so far as to describe this melody as elegant. Now, into the middle section, he surprises us again with a mode change. And this is not really that surprising. But anyway, he goes from B minor to B major, so from two sharps to five sharps. Here, it's bright, cheerful, and animated, and he's got these beautiful uh, arpeggios that just climb up, and then they come, jump back down, and climb up, and jump back down. It's really uh, a pleasing little section that gives us kind of a ray of sunshine in a way. And again, it's not that unusual. In fact, it's not unusual at all to change modes, but it is a striking feature of this movement. Finally, the last movement, the Allegro Molto, is written with an inherent sense of movement. The long, short, long, short, or in terms of note duration, eighth note, sixteenth uh, rest, sixteenth note, dum da dum da dum da dum. It bounds and skips along in a de delightful merriment. This lasts for a full page before the orchestra tutti breaks in, transitioning to a contrasting theme, more dark and forceful or powerful in nature. But it it never retains too much brooding. Rather, he interjects with bouts of showiness appropriate for the level of the student at in question. These two sections are reiterated, and finally a grand push to the end ensues. The coda embodies the quintessential style of ending that exudes 
victorious achievement, complete with perhaps a bit over-the-top exuberance and repeated tonic chords at the end. And, of course, don't forget that, that last laugh ha, chord either. And by last laugh, I, I mean, this is not a technical term at all. At all, obviously. But it's those repeated repeated tonic chords that punctuate the ending where you just play the same chord over and over again without changing or only slightly changing the sonority the way you build the chord. So it's just telling that it is all finished. I will blast you with one more chord. Uh, no, I mean this one last chord. Actually, one more. Ha! <laughs> Something to that effect. That's how I think of it anyway in, an, in a non-musical way. But that happens quite a lot. Beethoven does it in his um, uh, overtures quite a lot, where he's just doing the same thing over and over. Dvorak does it, and uh, Smetana, I think, does it. Anyway, now on to the Nocturnes and Tone Builder. Okay, I could go into the detail. This is a long podcast episode already, but I'm not. Uh, I think it's enough to say that there are many similar attributes in these nocturnes and tone builder. Um, you know, they're, they're short pieces. It's in a, on a different scale, but the, the elements are very similar. There are little surprises. There are pleasant uses of lyricism and ever so careful and sparse uses of these virtuosic licks. I mean, it's not... It's not virtuosity in in the true sense, but you get this you get this uh, a chance to display a little a little showiness, I guess you could say. Um, it's kind of like if you blink, you'll miss it, sort of thing. But it's there, and these are always uh, uh, technical um, licks that are appropriate to the level so the intermediate level or less depending on your view here's one point of comparison i'd like to draw your attention to and that is the last movement of the concerto the you know that dotted rhythm and that's the number compare that last movement of the concerto to um, number two called Mary Play from the six tone pictures of his 129. This figure, da, 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 it comprises both of these lively numbers and are so similar that it's hard to imagine that one wasn't taken as an example from the other. And it's this sort of comparison, when you look at it, it would be so incredibly helpful. You know, if I had had a chance to just play, for example, without too much uh criticism let's say the teacher just says hey let's just play this for fun to get ready for the concerto you know something that is a little higher up on the priority list play this first get used to what's happening see if you can make your bow and your fingers work better before you get to that other stuff that would be extremely useful see i think that would be smart uh a smart interjection of this forgotten music. You learn how to execute rhythm before you get to the, let's say, the the more valuable piece, at least 
it's higher value in terms of repertoire in the studio. And finally, to the point, ah, why is the melody in the grand duo so good? Why do I like it so much? What draws me in? Well, he begins by using more of the palette. I mean, there's just more color from the very beginning. You could start on in the first position on the G string, one and then open A, open D, but open strings don't really sound that great when you're trying to be brooding and lyrical. So start in the fourth position, three on the C string, and then stay in fourth, one on D, uh, one on G, sorry. Something like this. You, you can sense that his ideas are deeper. He's, uh, it's a little more poignant, right? You cross over three strings for the first statement of the melody, and then finally also to the fourth string, or in in this case, the <laughs> you go from the C string all the way to the A string, and then it just it just has more connection to human emotion. It has um, more more energy, more variety. It's it's a little bit more like speech, a little bit more like a beautiful aria would be. I think it rises. It stays a little bit at the top to to linger. Then it falls. It has elongated sounds and then sudden splashes of energetic utterances, you know? So, after stating the musical case, the theme in, in the cello, that's, that's really awesome. I just love that he lets, he lets the pianos come through after this initial statement. But it's not just letting the piano do it. It's uh, supporting the piano. It's got intensity. You're down deep in deep register, but they're long tones. They're powerful tones, and it's almost it's almost as if he's doing kind of a uh, a low level, a tertiary level uh, melody, way down deep, and it's rising one step at a time. Anyway give and take. The piano, the cello, they both get an opportunity. And this arch, the initial uh, statement of the theme, this this theme has a beautiful arch to it. it. It starts on that low A, the lowest A you can play on cello, and it goes up to a B in um, like seventh position or something. And this is a great starting point because it's so Resil uh, resonant, this low A, especially when you play it on good strings. Oh, I can feel a more connectedness to Goltermann's music when I play this grand duo. And one more point about his melodic content. It doesn't ever seem to get static. In other words, it doesn't get stuck on the same notes. He he comes back, sure, but it's not that he repeats and over-repeats or over-emphasizes. I, I don't think that it is tedious to listen to, and I hope my recording is not tedious. Uh, I did my best with the practice time. Anyway, a good melody knows when to avoid coming back to the same notes, you know. And conversely, a good melody also knows how to use coming back to the same notes to an artistic end. So 
it's really strategic. Um, I mean, either way, it never feels tedious, so I mean, we're happy, right? So anyway, that's how I feel about the Grand Duo and Goltermann's music in general. So here I'm going to present the Grand Duo and um, yeah, just enjoy listening to it if you have any comments about it. Um, my cello, I hate to make excuses, my cello is just not in good condition right now. So I do apologize for anything that sounds askew. Here are all three movements. I, I would like you to think about in the first movement, I think it's a special moment. There's a wistful nostalgia. It's beautiful right before it comes back to the third, first theme. Tell me, please write a comment. Tell me if you can hear this. I would love to hear if anybody thinks that it's, it's a beautiful melody and, and deserves special mention like I think it does. Three movements. First movement is Allegro Monotropo. Second movement is a Romance Andante. And the third movement is a Finale Allegro Monotropo.
Was some ending wasn't it oh i love the way he he gives it a little bit extra in this grand duo i mean i do think that it's a grand and it is a duo ah if only i had been able to play it with a, a cello that was in really good condition and a real pianist i tried giving the midi piano part a little bit more realistic feel and i spent hours kid you not i spent hours trying to make the piano part feel a little bit better and it still could be a little more realistic i could tweak it here and there um i just wanted to get this podcast out as soon as possible it's been a month i can't believe it anyway it in the end it doesn't just push and pull grow and diminish it is more like what a you know you expect from good music Yeah, wonderful stuff. So, did you know? Did you know? Would you play them? Gultramon wrote these grand duos, which are basically sonatas. Hmm. Well, take a look at them for yourself and uh, play them. 
They really are compelling once you get to know them. Please take a moment on Spotify or on anchor.fm to answer the question. Get back to me. Uh, leave me a message. The question is, who knew that Goldramon wrote two grand duos, which are sonata-like? You could also let me know what you would like to hear on Forgotten Cello Music next. Um, I'm thinking to continue on with the violin cello and its history, in the, and this would be the section on the 19th century, particularly Italy is next. Um, I could think about doing more individual composers, or I could return as well to the violoncello, um, oh, the, the, I forgot the name of the, the book. The, at the very beginning, I did a lot of episodes that took and translated the biographies. This is the, the cello in the present, I think it is. And that was published in Hamburg in Germany. And I don't think it's in English anywhere. Anyway, that's all there is. Please remember that you can, by supporting me through Patreon, get great merch and you can get special uh, access to special content. You can also have your own unique arrangements of this beautiful music that I've uh, done. It's an arrange arrangements for cello quartets and cello duets and soon to come uh, forgotten cello music arrangements into cello duets. Sheet Music Plus. All the links are in the description. Thank you so much for listening. I do hope that you have a really wonderful day and remember to play more forgotten cello music. Thank you.